Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July 4th, 2023. July 4th, of course, Independence Day in the United States, when all Americans try to think about their country when perhaps in an odd way they become philosophers, uh, trying to become Aristotle, judging what is good and what isn't. We've done lots of shows on the morality of America. One uh, last year with the historian Zachary Shaw on America's struggle between vengeance and virtue. Uh, the image of uh, the interview we did was of the nuclear bomb and America's decision, rightly or wrongly, to drop two nuclear bombs on um, Japan. Um, it's a rather long-winded way into our conversation today. A few months ago, we did a show with uh, a history uh, of ideas uh, man, Benjamin Lipskin, on four groundbreaking women philosophers. Um, the women are up to something. He wrote an interesting book for Oxford philosophers, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch. One of those Oxford philosophers, Elizabeth Anscombe, offered one of the more profound critiques of American foreign policy and on um, Harry Truman's decision to drop nuclear weapons on Japan. Uh, she was a post-war Oxford philosopher. And she caused a stir uh, in uh, the 1940s when she suggested that Oxford was wrong to award Truman an honorary degree. Uh, Truman, as it happened, actually never got an undergraduate degree. Uh, but she was a moral philosopher and she used philosophy, I think, to make an interesting point about uh, Truman's decision. Uh, she was uh, a philosopher of intentionality. All this is an interesting introduction uh, to my guest today, uh, Nikhil uh, Krishnan, who has a new book out, A Terribly Serious Adventure, Philosophy at Oxford, 1900 to 1960, which includes in its gallery of distinguished philosophers, Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, Nikhil is joining us from Cambridge today. Uh, Nikhil, um, uh, you wrote an interesting piece in uh, The New Yorker on Aristotle recently, suggesting that we are all Aristotle. We're all trying to search for the good life. On July 4th, when Americans are all trying to be Aristotle, do you think um, uh, the Oxford philosophers and somebody like uh, Elizabeth Anscombe offers us a way to make moral sense of America? Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be talking to you and your uh, viewers. Um, I think uh, what I had said was not so much that we're all Aristotle, but that we're all Aristotelians. And by that, what I meant was the way in which we all naturally think about questions of right and wrong is not to see them simply as features of our actions, simply of what we do, but of our characters, our personality traits, the sorts of people that we are. And I do think that is how we naturally think about questions of ethics most of the time. What kind of person am I being right now? What kinds of character traits, what kinds of qualities of mind and feeling and sentiment am I displaying in my actions? Uh, and this uh, tradition of thought, uh, even though obviously it's very, very old, it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, uh, is one that was uh, 
in a state of decline by the 1940s, 50s. And it really took the uh, influence of few of, of the philosophers at Oxford that I write about in my book, one of whom you've just mentioned, Elizabeth Anscombe, who in a paper that she wrote in the late 1950s called Modern Moral Philosophy, uh, what Anscombe does is to try to bring Aristotle back, to say that the tendency in our modern culture to think that really there's only one important question about our actions, and that is, what kinds of consequences do they have? Do they bring about more good or uh, more harm? And she wanted to say, uh, that's not nearly enough. There's a lot more we need to consider in any analysis of actions. One of those things was, of course, the subject of her her most famous book, which is called Intention. You've got to think about the intentions of, of the agent, of the actor. Uh, and in doing that, she... Uh, brought about a sort of revolution within academic moral philosophy. It, it, there was her, there was uh, one of her colleagues and friends, from called Philippa Foote. There were two of the other women you've mentioned here, uh, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch. And Murdoch, and then, of course, is best known uh, as actually as a philosopher, uh, as, sorry, as a novelist, as opposed to a philosopher. She, she was always a, also a very distinguished philosopher. Yes, indeed. So I think what these philosophers were doing of that generation was to say, we need to find a different way of doing ethics. That's not just about computing or calculating the value of the consequences of our actions, but making it a full story of a part of the full story of a human life, a kind of narrative of the sorts of people we are. And it's no surprise that Murdoch, one of the ways in which she pursues her philosophy is by embedding it into the novels she wrote, some very, very fine novels from the 50s onwards. Yeah, I, I guess I know Anscombe was close to Wittgenstein, and they both agreed that philosophers shouldn't get locked into any academic department. Uh, Murdoch, of course, didn't. She became a novelist. Uh, Anscombe's actions in critiquing Truman was, I guess, the act of a philosopher. Some of the other, uh, in an ideal Socratic sense, but some of the other philosophers that you write about seem rather dry and academic. Gilbert Ryle, for example, uh, J.L. Austin. Um, these philosophers of, of language were the women, the women who were up to something, the, the Anscombs and the, and the Murdochs and, and the Philippa Foots of the world. Were they critics of, of that philosophical school in, in Oxford? Uh, in, in other words, mm. the, the world that you write about in A Terribly Serious Adventure was as much about disagreement as agreement about how to do philosophy. Is that fair? Yes, precisely. I think oh, we can get too caught up in the question of who belongs inside the tradition and who doesn't. So the way I try to think about Oxford philosophy is that it is a history of disagreement. It's a history of orthodoxy, and it's also a history of the heterodoxy. It's people in the centre and people at the margins. They're all part of it. Uh, and I don't like kind of distinguishing between who belongs and who doesn't. I think they all belong, whether or not they were on uh, the side of the mainstream or not. Uh, I mean, it is worth saying that even the philosophers you've described here as being critics of the mainstream, um, Anscombe and Murdoch, uh, it probably wouldn't be fair to say that they rejected academia. Anscombe remained uh, the member of a university department for most of her life, for several years at Oxford, and then up to the end of her career uh, at Cambridge. S similarly for uh, Iris Murdoch, who taught philosophy at Oxford for few decades before uh, she finally decided to give up her position and turn to writing full time. So um, 
so it's not so much that I'm saying there's the dry, academic, boring philosophers on the one hand, and there's all these exciting people who are on the outside. I suppose what I'm suggesting instead is that there are ways of being a critic, there are ways of being a rebel or a radical, uh, but without rejecting the institutions of academia themselves, uh, without thinking they've got to do them outside a department. There are ways of staying inside and being a critic from, uh, from there. So perhaps I could say a bit more about who this mainstream was that they were reacting against and why I think they've been underrated in uh, recent decades. So a couple of the figures you just mentioned there, one of them was a man called Gilbert Ryle, another uh, a colleague of his called uh, J.L. Austin. And these are both, I think, very, very fine uh, philosophers. On certain points, of course, they disagreed with people like Murdoch and, uh, and, and Anscombe. On certain others, I think they were all on pretty much the same side. Now, if you want to find one phrase to capture what many of these philosophers have in common, uh, it's the phrase ordinary language philosophy. And where that means not simply that they're trying to do philosophy in ordinary language um, without using jargon, though that's often true. They did uh, write extremely elegant prose. Uh, they used as little jargon as they could. Uh, so that is true. But really what makes them ordinary language philosophers is something else. It's the fact that um, they thought that a lot of philosophy was simply misconceived uh, from the start. It arose from people misunderstanding the way in which they ordinarily use their words. And what so this is, um, these are, shall we say, philosophers who, who philosophize about language itself. Would it be fair to say that the father of all this was, was Wittgenstein? You write about him in the book, too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Wittgenstein has in common with them that uh, a phrase that he captures very beautifully in a phrase about the origin of philosophical problems. He says, and this is um, the English translation of his book, which was, of course, done by Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, philosophical problems arise when language goes on holiday. And that's one way of saying it's being taken out of its natural habitat, its everyday kind of environment. And you put it into a slightly weird, unusual setting, the, the setting of academic philosophy. And then you start to worry about problems that wouldn't arise if you simply tried to return language to the setting or context within which it has its natural or ordinary role. Um, so um, there are all sorts of examples we can give of, of this happening. Um, Gilbert Ryle most famously does it in the context of um, the concept of mind. That's the name of his most famous book, The Concept of Mind. And there he says there's a temptation been very powerful in Western thought, at least since the 17th century onwards, which is to think that we've got to think of the mind and the body as two fundamentally different sorts of things. Uh, against that, he wants to say it's a mistake to think of the mind as if it were a thing that's inside another thing called the body. Uh, in fact, it's a mistake to think of it as any sort of thing at all. And what we can do here is attend a little bit to how we speak about the operations of the mind, what it is for people to have minds, to have intentions, ideas, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Um, and the more we the more we attend to the way in which we actually talk about mental activity, the less tempted we're going to be to think that there's some particular place, the spooky sort of non-physical, immaterial thing called the mind, where all of it happens. So the words... Yeah, are this is all very interesting. Um, but one wonders, the New York Times review of your, your piece suggested that, um, described the book, which it liked, it's an excellent book, um, as sly redescription to recast the history of philosophy at Oxford that you cover as uh, what, what makes this relevant today. How, how, how relevant is, is this? It sounds like a, 
a kind of linguistic scholasticism. A lot of this stuff seems obvious. No one talks, at least outside academic philosophy departments, no one talks about Gilbert Ryle or J.L. Austin anymore. Barely anyone talks about Wittgenstein. Why is this relevant now? I think it's relevant in the way that any philosophical reflection is relevant. The questions of philosophy may not arise in an explicit form within our lives. Um, we certainly don't appeal to the, the, the names of particular writers or thinkers uh, when we discuss these things. But virtually any uh, debate or conversation of significance we have is usually a couple of steps away from being a philosophical question. So I'm worried, for instance, about whether my university should or shouldn't invite a certain speaker. And then I see on the one side people standing up for freedom of speech and other side people talking about no platforming of people with certain reprehensible values. And then I say, well, hang on a second, how does one even go about trying to settle uh, a dispute like this? And that turns us straight away, just one step away from thinking about what exactly is freedom supposed to be in the first place? Um, how exactly do we quantify the amount of freedom somewhere? Um, what is it for someone to be free? And to have that kind of conversation in a responsible way, as opposed to just throwing out some random ideas and hoping they stick, if we're going to have that conversation responsibly, uh, I think we need some self-awareness about the way in which we're using our words. And... I think the kind of analysis that these philosophers are giving us is a way of uh, being more self-conscious. How exactly are we using a word like free? Is it always being used in the same way? Um, and the more attentive we become to the way in which we're using it, the more we'll see that what initially seemed like an intractable problem or, or a deep conflict is actually a lot simpler than we thought. Or in some cases, and more often what happens is that where we think there was just a single question, a single debate, really people are disagreeing over a number of different axes. And so I think the main thing it gives us is a sense of clarity. Uh, there's more than one thing going on. And we think better and we live better when our minds aren't muddied by the simplicity that, our, that language artificially imposes on us. So if you ask yeah, me... So what... the muddying of language and simplicity, they'll go together. So how could one of these philosophers, for example, uh, uh, Nikhil, um, help us in the 2020s with the issue of how we use language in the contemporary university, particularly when it comes to ethnicity and identity, which seems to dominate many of our conversations on this show. Uh, who, for, for people who want to figure out a way to um, make sense of what we should and shouldn't say in terms of other people, which of the Oxford philosophers would be a good introduction? Um, I can give you my favourite book that comes out of this tradition, though it's written a little bit outside of the time frame of my book. It's a book by a philosopher called Bernard Williams. It was published in 2002, and it's called Truth and Truthfulness. Mm. And the title will already suggest a little bit about uh, how uh, it's dealing with questions that are interesting and important to us outside of philosophy. So one of the things that Williams wants to do here is get aside from what you've earlier described as scholastic debates, debates about the nature of truth, what exactly is it for a sentence to be true, and there are various theories of that subject. And you know, they're interesting if you're a philosopher, interested in the very technical side of philosophy. But I think what William starts by saying is that that's not my question. The question isn't what does it mean for something to be true? I think we all have a pretty reasonable grasp of, for instance, the difference between 
a truth and a lie, the difference between getting something right and getting something wrong. The question is rather, um, why does it matter so much to us to get things right rather than wrong? And what he tries to do in the book is to give us an account of why truth matters to us. And the way in which he does it is by saying, uh, there are these two qualities, call them virtues, if you like. There's the virtue of sincerity, which is the quality of mind that means you tell the truth. Um, and there's accuracy, which means the quality of mind, which makes you go about trying to get things exactly right. And over the course of the book, what he tries to do is to develop a theory of what we lose when we stop caring about telling the truth and when we stop caring about getting it right. And by starting from models such as, say, um, what happens in the sciences, why does it matter so much that scientists have to be as careful as they are in the way in which they conduct their experiments? What would we think of a scientist who just made up experimental results because he thought they looked more uh, elegant that way? Right? Where do these qualities come from? And so he tells a story about why we need these things from each other in the first place, why it matters for us to get things right. And then over time, we develop a historical picture. How did we come to care about it? in exactly the ways that we do. And that gives us a way of thinking about, for instance, what's going on in certain humanities disciplines when they start to say that all truth is relative, you can effectively just make something up, and leading all the way on to you know, a certain kind of politician who's utterly indifferent to whether the things he says are true or false, right or wrong. Um, so I can say a bit more about um, how the theory is supposed to work here, but that's just a very clear instance of well, that. What, uh, <laughs> Williams is best known as a literary critic. Murdoch, of course, uh is better known as a, a novelist um, than as a, a philosopher. Could one make the argument to Nikhil that when language goes on holiday, the, 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 the phrase uh, that Anscombe translated from Wittgenstein, um, uh, philosophers need to become novelists like Murdoch, like the great voices of the 20th century, Camus, for example, uh, Orwell, uh, we remember those men. We don't remember Ryle or Austin, barely even, as I said, uh, Wittgenstein. How, how does literature, fiction, if you like, fit in to the Oxford School? Perhaps you might say something a, a little bit more about Murdoch and why she chose to invest most of her creative in, intellectual time in, in writing fiction rather than philosophy. Yes, that's an interesting question. I think one way of getting at it is maybe starting from the place I just left off, which is that if philosophy is governed by any value in particular, it's got to be the value of truthfulness. But that doesn't mean that all that philosophers have to do or all that people with philosophical interests have to do is to go about trying to assert as many truths as possible. I mean, that would be an incredibly boring thing. For one thing, not all truths are equally interesting or important. So I think a question that naturally comes up next is not whether one is telling the truth, but how one is telling the truth. Mm. What is the mode or form for one's truth telling to take? And someone like Murdoch, I think, is interested in telling the truth. She's interested in telling the truth about the human condition. But she recognizes a few important things about the human condition. One of them is that human beings are individuals and human beings have what she would call inner lives. And um, against a tradition in which people are obsessed with the outward, with what's being manifested in behavior, she's interested in the kinds of things that are private, that go on in people's minds, but that aren't readily observable to other people. And if you want an account of human life or truth of the human condition, then you'll have to find a form that is true to the nature of human experience. And one truth about the human experience is just how much of our existence is, in a sense of the word, private. So um, I think 
the novel becomes a way in which truths can be told, but obliquely, but indirectly, or using the full resources of style and rhetoric. Um, and there's no real gap here between what the novelist is trying to do. There's no necessary gap between what the novelist is trying to do and what the philosopher is. They're all just forms of truth-telling, just trying to find different styles. But the of novelist doesn't lecture, whereas, and, and perhaps the great mm -hmm. philosophers don't lecture either. You know, we go back to Socrates, he, he didn't lecture, he, he, he argued. I wonder, also going back to Anscombe, um, she has a strongly religious background. She was very influenced by Aristotle and Aquinas. Um, what about the role of religion in, in your terribly serious adventure? Many, many people, when they think of the Oxford of the first part of the century, think of it in a, in a, in a, in a skeptical um, a uh, unreligious way. W was religion important for many of these philosophers? For some of them, yes. I suppose the way in which I try and bring religion into my story is in two ways. Um, so first, I think religion stands in a lot of our minds as a model or a kind of exemplar of what seriousness, intellectual seriousness is like. Um, if you are religiously minded, if you are, as uh, Elizabeth Anscombe was, a practicing and very devout Roman Catholic, then questions of philosophy are not disconnected from the rest of your life. It makes an enormous difference to how one lives, uh, how one considers right and wrong. And so in that sense, you've raised philosophy from the level of something that's kind of like a crossword puzzle. Uh, where you can be really clever and quick at it, to something which really engages more basic human concerns. And so what I try to do is to say that um, while it is true that certain philosophers such as Anscombe, uh, in some phases or periods of her life, Iris Murdoch, even though they took their cue for what counted as seriousness from religion, there are plenty of other ways in which you can add stakes, um, S-D-A-K-E-S, to what would otherwise be a trivial philosophizing. And I can give you a few more examples of that, uh, but I suppose the most obvious case is that of politics. I mean, people generally agree that politics has high stakes. We also know that part of the way in which we use power in politics is through the use of language. So what these philosophers are doing is but attention to language becomes a way of doing politics in a more honest and thoughtful and self-conscious yeah, way. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up politics. One of the, the figures, maybe not centrally in your narrative, but certainly important, is Isaiah Berlin. I was just in Riga. I visited his birthplace there. Berlin, though, isn't, you know, it's considered an important political thinker in the 20th century, but he's really a historian of political thought. Um, he, in many ways, rejects the idea of some sort of coherent political philosophy. Most of the characters you talk about, I mean, Anscombe in her own way is obviously political in her critique of Truman. Uh, Murdoch was always very political in her novels. Some of the others, uh, to be honest, I don't know enough about Ryle or Austin um, to comment on their politics. But how did this terribly serious adventure play out in terms of politics? Of course, at Cambridge, I'm guessing uh, the the Marxist school was much more powerful, both inside and outside uh, philosophy. Yes, I think I'm slightly resisting the idea that the way in which philosophy relates to politics has to be by giving people one political philosophy. Um, I think one thing that it can do is to do precisely the sort of thing that Isaiah Berlin tried to show, that the attempt to try and bring a sort of uh, order or systematicity to all of our political values is doomed to failure. And it's not merely that it's doomed to intellectual failure, is that it leads to bad 
political consequences. So, for instance, one of his uh, best-known examples is of the two values of freedom and equality. And I think one thing that uh, Berlin, who was, of course, a lifelong anti-communist, uh, someone, an emigre who left the Soviet Union after the revolution, um, one of the things he strongly resists is the idea that all values ultimately cohere. Uh, that if you you can have a perfect state of the world, which will be both egalitarian and liberal all at the same time. And it's the kind of thing he associated with, say, the rhetoric of, of Stalin, the unwillingness to admit that politics uh, involves trade-offs, involves difficult choices. Something is gained and something else is lost. And I think what it, part of what he tries to do is, as you rightly say, to examine this historically, to tell an account of the history of ideas, which will bring out the risks of thinking in this way. But he equally, I think, he's trained within this tradition of Oxford philosophy. Some of his earliest papers very much belong to that tradition. And part of his most famous lecture called Two Concepts of Liberty is trying to use some of these methods of linguistic analysis to show why certain ways of talking about freedom and equality are fundamentally confused. So is that itself a political philosophy? Well, not quite in itself, but I think it's sort of laying the groundwork for what any sensible political philosophy would have to be. Of course, uh, yeah, as, as you say, uh, Berlin's Two essays on liberty are very important. He's probably the most influential 20th century liberal. But would it be fair to say that at this period, Oxford sort of lost, lost leadership, shall we say, in political philosophy? We did a show um, a couple of months ago with Daniel Chandler, who's at the LSE. I'm sure you know his work. Uh, he's uh, rehabilitating John Rawls. Would it be fair to say that with Rawls and Arendt and so many other dominant American political philosophers in this period, that political philosophy crossed the Atlantic and that while Oxford might be important for its linguistic tradition, uh, it lost leadership in other areas? And might it, in, a, in an odd way, reflect the decline of, of England and the empire and all the rest of it? Yes, I have uh, several things to say on it. I'll say one of them. I think uh, on the whole, I think your thesis is is right. I think that the tendency was very much pessimistic here, politically pessimistic about what could be done reasonably in politics, pessimistic about what sorts of fundamental disagreements can or ought to be aired in the political realm. So this is very much the era of what's sometimes called the Butzkeleit consensus, a very narrow range of political issues that are pretty much uh, agreed upon by uh, the major political parties. So uh, there's that kind of political pessimism combined with a really pessimistic picture of what philosophy can do just by itself. And the idea is that what philosophy can do by itself is analyze language, analyze our concepts. What it can't do is to give you a radical, innovative, creative new theory. And where Rawls comes in, I think, is quite rightly to say that's an unnecessarily narrow, constrained picture of what philosophy can do. Um, and what he does, I think, is... Uh, combine philosophy with what's being done in the social sciences, particularly in economics, rational choice theory. And he draws upon the resources of economics, psychology and so forth to say, yeah, we can actually do some philosophy, actually ask the question, not what does the word justice mean, but what are the demands of justice for society? And I do think that there's something important and valuable that happens in the decades. And talking about Arendt, uh, I'm not sure if I'm sure Arendt was at some point or other at Oxford, uh, for a few days, but she went back to Aristotle to reinvent a, a, a classical tradition of civic virtue. So it, it, it could have been done. It's, it's interesting that it didn't happen at Oxford. 
One thing that's interesting, it seems to me, is uh, maybe one of the more interesting legacies of the school you write about is from Philippa Foote, the third woman in, 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 in the Trinity, um, who came up with the idea of the trolley problem, which is increasingly relevant in our age of AI. You might say something about Philippa Foote and her trolley problem and why that remains so interesting in the age of smart machines. Yes, I should say I'm a little bit sceptical about some of the uses to which that uh, trolley problem have been have been used. But what Foote, I think, is trying to do in the first instance is to say that we can do more in moral philosophy than simply analyse the nature of our moral concepts. And one of the ways in which she tries to do that is to bring out a certain um, asymmetry, or incoherence in our moral thought. Between, on the one hand, I'm sort of slightly going beyond the way Foote herself presents it, but the standard way in which we now talk about it is, suppose you think you're in one of those classic trolley situations. There's a runaway trolley. It's about to hit five people, but it's possible for you to pull a lever so that it'll kill only one. Now, a lot of people, not everyone, but nearly everyone says that it would in that situation be at least okay for you to do it. Some people would go further and say you actually must do it. You would be wrong not to. You'd have to uh, pull the trolley, uh, pull the lever, because killing five is much worse than killing one. But then what Foot then brings out is that once you really apply that reasoning again or that principle again, a number of other situations, it's not at all clear what we should do or think. Does it mean that if I could push someone into the way of a trolley to save five lives, I ought to do it? And a lot fewer people seem happy with that. Suppose I could take the organs of one person, one healthy person, redistribute them to five people who all need one organ to save their lives. Would it be okay even if I didn't have this person's consent? And all of these cases, I think what that brings out most fundamentally is that a single principle saying always save five lives rather than one isn't enough. And if you designed an AI just to go by that one principle, always reduce the number of uh, of lives lost or uh, increase the number of lives saved, I think you'd get a very, very weird ethics. And, one and, and it's so relevant today. I mean, this is not just an academic problem. Uh, as we as we train self-driving cars, we, ha- uh, we have to train them to make these moral decisions. What, what would... You or the Oxford philosophers tell us about the idea of a moral AI. It's increasingly dominating, maybe not philosophical departments, but the offices of Silicon Valley startups. I'm inclined to think it is dominating uh, philosophy departments just as much uh, lately. I'm not sure I have uh, something directly to say that comes from this Oxford tradition. I think uh, there's a very general moral here, which is that there's always a tendency to simplify the complexity of our moral thought. It's to uh, to think that it can be captured in one or two fairly straightforward, easy to execute principles. Uh, I think what this tradition tells us is that our thoughts are more complex than we realize they are. Uh, Our principles are a bit messier, a bit wonkier than we think they are. And if you want an AI that reflects something of the complexity of human decision-making, then it had better aim to be at least as complex as human thought. And in one way, you might think that the general pattern of large language models and so forth is trying to do precisely that. It's to feed it on a large number of uh, of texts or a a corpus of, um, of texts that allow it to kind of learn something of the structure of our language. And if it can be done with language, perhaps in principle it could be done for thought. I'm not immediately optimistic, but I think the main moral would be don't expect a simple answer. Yeah, and the, the, the startup DeepMinds, which got acquired by uh, Google, did that come out of Oxford or Cambridge? 
Uh, I'm not sure I know, actually. Uh, anyway, of course, you're obviously an admirer of this school. You write with, I guess, certainly a, a degree of, of love, perhaps even uh, nostalgia about this period. I'd love to have been around, too. Not everyone, though, was quite as sympathetic as you. The... Um, the Czech anthropologist, Anglo-Czech anthropologist uh, Ernest Gellner wrote a book, uh, famously made his name in 1959, Words and Things, in which he described a lot of this linguistic philosophy and particularly associated with Wittgenstein. Uh, he, he said it was uh, totally and utterly misguided. Uh, and, and I'm quoting him. And so I explored it further and finally came to the conclusion that I'd did understand it right, and it was rubbish, which indeed it is. Uh, Gellner created a great storm. I think people like Ryle and Austin were furious. What would you make of, of that uh, critique by Gellner? Is it possible that the emperor was naked and it required someone like Gellner, a Czech immigrant, to say, look, all this is nonsense? Um, no, I don't think he was right in the uh, substance of the critique of the philosophy. I think he may have been right in the substance of his critique of the philosophers as people and of the institutions in which that philosophy was done. So um, my sympathies for Gellner, I think, come down to a sympathy for you know, the side of the person being bullied against the person uh, doing the bullying. A, a lot of mainstream traditions within any academic discipline, indeed in any institution, start to ossify. They start to center around people rather than principles or principles rather than methods or styles. And once that happens, um, I think we start to draw lines in the stand and say, you know, who's who's in, who's out, who's the who's of the elect, who are the damned. And like any other tradition of human beings, I think Oxford philosophy was prone to those sorts of vices. And I think uh, Gellner was right to point out the extent of the domination of certain personalities within that period. And particularly Wittgenstein. I mean, he was a horrible, you know, he's been turned into a saint by his followers, but he was a horrible bully. And I think that um, it required someone with the confidence, maybe the the Schweckian confidence of Gellner to actually stand up to a, a man like Wittgenstein, who was both personally and I think intellectually uh, a, a bully. Well, he did it after Wittgenstein himself was uh, was dead, of course, which made it a little bit easier. <laughs> I, mean, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I think uh, I, I have enough trust in Gellner that he would have done it to his face, too. Possibly, possibly. Now, uh, on all of the, these points, I think that it's not hard. I think we should be against bullying. That's not a difficult uh, a point to defend. Uh, but the question is whether in doing that, we end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater, in throwing mm. out water valuable and salutary within this tradition because it was practiced by some unpleasant people or uh, sometimes done in unpleasant ways. I think what I'm interested in is to try and work out what survives of it, what is in it of abiding value. And it's a bit easier to see that now because all the folks who were behind it are now dead. So we're not stuck with them. Right? We're not in a room with them, allowing them to bully us. We can actually read their books and mm. see how much of it actually does something for us. I wonder when the smoke clears as it's beginning to clear and you're helping clear that smoke on this period, period of great intellectual richness, remarkable characters, whether ultimately what we're left with is maybe not so much an interesting story of philosophy, but an interesting story of men and women. Uh, I think of someone like A.J. Ayer, who appears in your, in your narrative. I'm not sure what his legacy was in, in terms of the history of philosophy or his contribution to morality, but certainly he, he led an amazing life. He was married four times. He was full of, of uh, 
amusing, entertaining observations. The same, of course, is true of Iris Murdoch. Ultimately, uh, Nikki, when, when, when the smoke clears, will this 60 years that you cover, will it be remembered in terms of this terribly serious adventure as an adventure of a remarkable group of men and women rather than of remarkable philosophers? Um, I mean, I hope I'd, I'd like it to remember it as both. But perhaps one way of putting it is to say it's a mistake to look for the legacy of philosophy in some confirmed result that survives forever and ever. I think philosophy is best seen and was seen by the people of this tradition as uh, an activity. It's something you do. Mm. And the way in which you learn about it is not by reading a book which gives you its results, but rather by seeing it being done in the context of a human life while history continues in the background. Uh, so I think the interesting lives led by these people is in part a history of people working through certain problems. And I think we can learn something from their successes as well as from their failures. And finally, what does it mean to you uh, personally? You, you came to, uh, I think, Cambridge um, as a Rhodes Scholar. You teach there. You came from India. Um, I'm guessing a degree of ambivalence given the British colonial adventure, if that's the right word, in India. Yes, I mean, I don't make too much of um, of this, but I suppose what I'm trying to do here is to disentangle philosophical value from the power and prestige of the institutions within which it was done. And a lot of the influence this kind of philosophy had back in the 50s, I think, was simply due to the fact that Britain was a remained just about a very powerful country. Um, but now that it isn't, certainly not in anything like the same way that it was in the 40s and 50s, I think that's one way in which the smoke has cleared. And we can actually look to these texts, not as something that was done by an empire in its prime, but by particular individuals, particular books, particular arguments. And I think it's open to all of us to do with it what we can. If we think they got it right, it's as much ours as it is anybody else's. It doesn't belong to Britain. It should belong to everybody in the same way that any truth or any insight belongs to everybody.